Welcome to the Build a Life After Loss podcast, where we help women who have lost children to build a life of purpose and joy. Our aim is to encourage your hope in the future and strengthen your confidence. I'm your host, Julie Clough, life coach and certified grief recovery specialist. Hello, my friend. Welcome to episode 15, Suffering is Optional. I'm so happy to be with you today. My prayer is always that these episodes will help in your adjustment to your new reality, a reality that none of us would have chosen, but certainly it's our reality nonetheless. So today's title comes from a quote, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. This is a quote that's often attributed to Buddhist teachings. Don't get me wrong, I think we experience pain and suffering when we grieve, no doubt. But there comes a time when we can start to use our higher brain, our our higher self, to start assessing and assimilating and creating some buffers against the suffering. As I've mentioned before, I've experienced a lot of loss in my life, even before carrying David's death. The first really traumatic loss I experienced was the death of my brother, John from suicide. It was just before his 23rd birthday and just before my 26th birthday. The pain and confusion was indescribable. I was living in my hometown of Clearwater, Florida, and he had moved away, married and moved away. And John had experienced some depression over the years, but at that time, many years ago, it was not something that anyone really talked about. Even now, with all the information that it's available, it's still a difficult diagnosis to handle. Frankly, our family didn't really understand what we were dealing with, and we didn't have a clue how to help him. I remember how stunned I was when I found out that he had died. Actually, the first phone call I got was that he was in the hospital, but it appeared that he was brain dead and he wasn't going to make it. Such a strange feeling to realize that it was over. My brain wanted to convince me that there was still a possibility that miracles happen, but that wasn't going to be the case. So I flew out to Salt Lake City which was where he was living at the time, working as an assistant editor. We went from the airport to the funeral home where I got to see him during the family viewing. It was all so surreal. I was truly numb. In fact, I remember overhearing my mother around the corner at the funeral home saying to someone, I'm worried about Julie. She doesn't seem to be grieving. Honestly, we just don't know how to act, do we? I mean, believe me, I cried, but mostly in private. We had a service for him there, and then we flew home to bury him in Clearwater at a graveside service. I remember going back to the house with all the food, back to my parents' house, with all the food that had been brought in, and eating with the family, and occasionally laughing. I remember how appropriate and awkward it felt to laugh at such a time. Appropriate, because that's who my brother was, and awkward, because we were truly mourning. I was only 26 with two small daughters, and my friends didn't know what to say or do. I think this is when I realized how really hard it was for people to figure out what to say. And too often, they people say things or do things we find unhelpful. But my friends weren't sure how to help, but they did know that they could help with the girls. So they pitched in and helped where they could. But for the first couple of weeks, I walked around in a fog. I was confused. I was sad and distraught. But with two little girls that needed me, I jumped right back into life. About three weeks after the funeral, there was a very casual tennis tournament sponsored by my church that I had registered for previously. I remember being confused as to whether I should go to the tournament, but I went 
and I actually enjoyed it some. However, I felt conflicted the whole day between pain and enjoyment. Pain because I truly loved my brother and I missed him and I was sad and enjoyment because I enjoyed the tournament, but the com- the conflict was between those two feelings and feeling maybe it wasn't appropriate to enjoy myself, but I'm glad I went. It was my first opportunity to go out and do something normal in public with people that I knew, and I learned that connection is so important. It was a healing day for me. Honestly, I missed my brother so much. He was funny and engaging. He was super smart and clever. He would entertain us with his comedic routines and impersonations, and I was convinced he could have been a successful comedian. Occasionally over the years, I would see someone in the crowd that would remind me of him, but that was my first major loss, and I knew I was sad for some time, which was further complicated by the manner in which he died. I lived in the same town with my parents, and nobody suffered like they did. It was devastating, so while my grief was tangible and significant, there was no comparison to my parents' grief, especially my mother. Eventually, my life went back to some semblance of normal. This was my first very personal experience with loss. I didn't know what to do or how to support my family or what to expect, but I learned things that were important. I learned to not have expectations of others and how they supported me in my grief. I learned that connection is vital, and I learned that I could feel happiness and a joy again even after a terrible loss. But as devastating as this loss was, it didn't cause me to dig deep. It felt like it at the time, but nothing compared to losing my children. That caused me to have to dig really deep. Having experienced other losses helped me to realize that I could be okay and that the grief I was going through was normal. So let's talk about what it means to experience pain but not suffer. Obviously, in the early days of your grief, there is a ton of grief, pain, and suffering to be expected. Please don't misunderstand. There is pain and suffering in the beginning of our grief journey. But last week we talked about the effects of grief on the brain. Grief has a physical and an emotional component. Our body responds in a physical way to protect us, to slow things down a bit so we can process at a rate that makes sense, at a rate that our mind and soul can handle. This is one reason why some doctors advise that you don't go on antidepressants for grief because it interferes with the body's natural function during this assimilation. If you've been prescribed antidepressants, it's very important that you work closely with your doctor and follow their advice. I'm not telling anybody to get off antidepressants, but remember that you can change doctors if you don't feel like you're getting the support you need. Important to this discussion about pain and suffering is how our thoughts affect our emotions, and our behaviors. We can have pain and we can reduce our suffering by choosing thoughts that educate our feelings. I want to again review how our thoughts influence our emotions and our actions. This is a famous quote from Viktor Frankl. He was a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp in World War II and the author of Man's Search for Meaning. I remember reading that book and I remember the pain that he experienced And I remembered the fog and the confusion that he also experienced. But this is what he's taught us. And here's the quote. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So when he talks about stimulus, stimulus is the situation. Your response is your behavior. Not mentioned in his quote is the thought that in between the stimulus and the response is a thought. The thought 
What we're thinking is where the magic lies. We likely don't have any control over the situation, whether that's an event or the action of others. Our emotions are a direct consequence of what we're thinking, and our behaviors are a direct result of our emotions. And when you add up your behaviors, you get your results. Let me line it up for you. First comes the situation, then our thought about the situation, then our feelings as a result of our thoughts, then our behavior, and finally our results. The critical choice is our thought. This is where we cause our own suffering and where we can seek peace and happiness. That is our choice. I outlined this a little bit in episode seven, what others say and do. I gave examples of how this worked with what others say and do. Today, I'm going to use a work illustration. Let's say the situation is you work at ABC Company. That's the circumstance. Now, what is your thought? Is it, this is a miserable place to work? If so, what feelings are going to come with that thought? Probably misery, gloom, unhappiness. So what are your behaviors when you're feeling gloomy? I'm guessing you would be unproductive in your job. And what's the result of being unproductive? Maybe not progressing or getting the promotion that you want. Stagnation would be the result. Now, what if in the same situation the situation being you work at ABC Company, you change the thought to something like, I'm very good at my job. What are your feelings about your work now? Maybe you feel capable, accomplished, motivated, or successful. What are your behaviors if you feel accomplished or any of those other feelings, motivated, successful? Probably you'll be productive, industrious. And if you are productive and industrious, what results are you going to get? likely progression and promotion, and you get better and better and more capable at your job. The results always prove our thought. So interesting. In the first illustration, the thought was, this is a miserable place to work. And the result was stagnation, which is miserable. In the second example, the thought was, I'm very good at my job. And the result was, you get better and better at your job. See how the result proves the thought? When you have a situation, when you realize that you're having a thought about something that's creating some suffering or some misery, you want to choose a thought that you can believe. In this illustration, the first thought was, this is a miserable place to work. The second thought was, I'm very good at my job. Both of those situations we could believe, right? Which one serves us? Does it serve us to think working here is miserable? Or does it serve us to think, I'm very good at my job? So let me repeat Viktor Frankl's quote. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. What I have found challenging, and what can be particularly challenging after loss, is that there just doesn't seem to be enough space between the stimulus and the response. It feels like there is no thought in between the two. But... If you look at it closely, we find that there really is, that the thought is so ingrained and automated that the response is almost instantaneous. The answer is to widen the space between stimulus and response, to become aware and familiar with our thoughts and our beliefs. So what can we do to widen the space between stimulus and response? I'm going to suggest two ways that can help widen this gap. The first is journaling. This can be your typical journaling, which helps you focus on what's happening in the present and what your thoughts are about it. 
then we can start to examine our thoughts, which are now out of our brain and on the paper, much easier to dissect. When we read our thoughts, not with judgment, but with curiosity, we can start to distinguish between the facts and the thoughts. So when we say something like, Joe is mean, we think it's a fact. We have evidence. He said this and he did that, right? But Joe is mean is a thought. It's a judgment about Joe. It's not a fact. The situation would be Joe, period. The thought is Joe is mean. And how does that make you feel? Not good, I imagine. So now the challenge is to recognize that it's a thought and find a thought that serves you better. Maybe you think Joe is mean because he doesn't talk to you. What if you changed your thought to Joe is quiet? Doesn't that feel better? So in any situation, we can examine what we're currently thinking about it, and we can examine what also we can believe that would help us feel better. What we focus on expands. The second method of creating a larger gap between the stimulus and the response, that gap that allows us to recognize our thoughts, the second tool is meditation. Meditation is so healing. You can't meditate without being in the present moment. That is the magic of meditation. It's just not possible to meditate and not be present. In fact, meditation is training our brain to return to the present over and over again. As we become better at it, we become better at staying present. Prayer is another form of meditation. Prayer has the same healing effects. You may prefer prayer over meditation. If you want to try meditation, start slow and simple. Start with five minutes of slow breathing and focusing only on your breath. I think I've recommended before the app Insight Timer. It's such a good one for learning to meditate. It has guided meditations as well as just quiet music to meditate to. With journaling and meditation over time, we can create more space between the stimulus and the response. We start to notice our thoughts. We start to train our thoughts. This is a learned habit and a skill we can benefit from forever. It doesn't happen overnight, but as we practice, we will start to recognize those thoughts. Today, we talked about the difference between pain and suffering, that our thoughts cause our feelings and therefore can prolong our suffering if we're not observant, and that there are ways to examine our thoughts and create space between stimulus and response. There comes a time when suffering is optional. Thanks for joining me today. Remember to check out Work with Julie on the website buildalifeafterloss.com. I look forward to talking to you very soon. Have a wonderful week, my friend.